You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 102. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Sklar. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. You have reached another Local Maximum. It's January 20th, 2020. 2020. Uh, I guess that, well, it's 0120, so maybe, well, there is no 20th month, so maybe we can... Uh, maybe in February, it'd be 02202020. So that would be pretty cool. Um, another solo show today, which means I get to experiment with something new. Uh, I'm just getting back from all my travels over the holiday season. Just got back from San Diego, spent about a week out there in California. Very nice there, but I am ready to get back to work. It certainly hasn't been a slow news year in 2020 so far as we, uh, finish out the first month, uh, or even we're in the middle of the first month, <laughs> it feels like. But, uh, you know, in terms of stories that are of unique interest to this show, to the local maximum, um, there are a few, but uh, I think there haven't been very many. A lot of companies like to make their big launches before the holiday season. A lot of news tends to happen before the holiday season. Um, in January, it's kind of, people are kind of back to work. Uh, there is um, although one a good thing about uh, the start of the new year is that people start to have more time to do interviews again. So um, interviews are going to start to ramp up pretty soon again here on the local maximum. Uh, there, one thing there always is in January that we covered last year is the, the CES, the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. Um, and, and we did do an episode on it last year, but even though there's always a lot of interesting products being demoed uh, out there, most of it is kind of in line with the trends that we've already spoken about on the local maximum. So next time I talk to Aaron, I think we're going to do something a little different. I have some great guests lined up for the next few weeks. So as we wait for that, let's, uh, let's do a math show. It's today is sort of a combo math computer science show. If you remember in episode 97, I spoke to David Kopeck, who wrote a book series on classic computer science problems, uh, one in Python, one in Swift. Very popular episode. Uh, if, you, if you check out the episode show notes, I think we still have um, a few giveaways available. Uh, almost my most popular, my most downloaded episode yet, which, uh, which might be surprising. Um, but um, I think we have a lot, of, uh, a lot of developers and engineers out there. Um, today, you know, you might be interested, you will be interested in today's episode, but I think everyone will be interested in today's episode if you're kind of interested in math and logic as well. Uh, I did two math-related episodes in the past. I enjoyed doing them, uh, and I didn't get any complaints from my usual listeners, even the ones who are coming in for uh, for the politics or for the or, or something else. So maybe I'll try to do something like this once a quarter uh, if it continues to be popular and if people like it. So I'm really fascinated by the topic that I'm going to cover today. You know, it's sometimes it's covered seems a little dry. It doesn't seem dry to me at all. It's just, it's uh, mathematical and logical induction. So if you don't know anything about it, I'm hoping to explain to you why it's so cool. And if you do know something about it, I, I think you'll hear it from a little bit of a different perspective here because I've been thinking about this for a while. So, all right, let's see how it goes. Um, so, Induction. What is induction? Induction is actually a logical shortcut. If you think about one of the major, major ingredients in logical thinking, it's the logical implication. 
That's usually when you say, um, I have some something that might be true, A, let's call it statement A, and that implies statement B. Or if I learn that A is true, then I am allowed to conclude that B is true because we have uh, concluded an implication between those two statements. So I usually think about that in my, I, I kind of have a pipe with uh, truth juice model as I, I sort of think of it as a pipe that's been built from A to B. And so once you have some truth flowing through A, it'll flow down to B. But there's no truth flowing through A at the moment. We've only been able to build the pipe, and that's what the implication is. So in other words, I don't know if either of them are true. Now uh, I know that if I want to conclude B, I can first find that A is true, and then I can get there. So that's, there are a number of different ways of, of looking at this, but that's, that's one way. Um, it's always annoying to try to come up with new, fresh examples for these because I think there have been <laughs> examples given for these for like thousands of years. Uh, but uh, let's say I look at the local maximum feed and I see that there's an episode 102. That's this episode. Okay, if I see episode 102, uh, that might imply to me that there's also an episode 101. But um, this is true even before you see episode 102. So it's just that now that you see 102, you can use the implication and say, aha, now I can conclude that there's a 101. But even before you've checked your feed, you know that if you see 102, that will apply that there, imply that there is 101, unless I broke the rules of counting. Uh, could always happen, but uh, I, I don't think so. Um, Another, uh, again, I'm going back to like the standard examples, which I always hate doing. I always want to be fresh. But uh, another is if it's raining, then the exposed ground will get wet, etc. Those are more like, um, those are the real world kind of statements, the physical statements. And those are analogous to logical statements, which are more like um, if a number ends in the digit six, that implies that it's even, for example. So the, the logic world is more exact than the physical world. You can have implications in both. You know, hey, if it's raining, the exposed ground will get wet. I don't know. Maybe that's not necessarily true. Maybe you have some weird rain that it evaporates before before uh, it gets down there. But if a number ends in the digit six, that implies that it's even and, and you know, everything's kind of logically defined. So we know we're talking about, <laughs> you know, someone's gonna say, oh, but you know, you could be using a different base. No, we, we know we're using base 10 and all that. Um, if a number ends in the digit six, that implies it's even. No, now it's absolutely logically airtight. Uh, so the logical world and the physical world, you kind of have to think about differently sometimes, uh, but you can have implications in both. So today, we're mostly talking about the logical world, and then I'm going to have a few things to say about the physical world at the end. Okay, so you have that one building block, that one Lego block, as Dennis Crowley likes to say, uh, called the logical implications. So then the question is, can we build this up this big machine, something more complex, more interesting uh, than just a single logical implication. I mentioned a pipe. Now you think, okay, what if I build a lot of pipes? And of course the answer is yes. And the one way we could do this is by chaining these together. So suppose that you know A implies B, B implies C, and C implies D. Then by the law of transitivity, you know, A implies B and A implies D. So, you know, you learn A and then uh, you could think of it as kind of a chain reaction. I learned that A is true and then I use the first implication to learn B and then the second implication to learn C and then the third to learn D. So it's just boom, 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 boom. I kind of set it up. Then I proved A and then all the dominoes fell. And I, I kind of like that analogy to watching dominoes falling. These days you can go on YouTube actually 
and you can get some pretty great dominoes routines. Uh, there's one I like called the World Tour of Dominoes or something like that. I'll post on the show notes page, localmaxradio.com slash 102. But it's like, I think it's like 10 minutes of dominoes falling um, through different like country flags and and uh, and landmarks and, and and stuff like that. It's it's pretty cool. But there's a lot of them on YouTube. Um, and so it starts with a simple idea uh, when you use the dominoes analogy. One domino falling causes the next to fall and then it starts a chain reaction. And the only thing you really need to start it is to push over the first domino. So I don't know about you, but if I'm watching dominoes fall, I kind of ask, oh, wow, how many dominoes can someone line up this way? Wouldn't it be really cool to have a very long chain reaction like you kind of do in that YouTube uh, video and all those YouTube videos? And for mathematical induction, you actually set up an infinite or arbitrarily long chain reaction uh, of implications. So the, the, the key idea with induction on the counting numbers uh, and by the counting numbers, I'm talking about the natural numbers. Uh, those are numbers starting with zero, one, two, et cetera, and working your way up. Is that you want to show that something is true for all of the numbers, for all of the numbers. And so instead of going through all of the numbers one by one and like painstakingly proven, uh, hey, this is true for two, this is true for five, this is true for seven, as they come up, you're going to make an arrange uh, an argument that. If something is true for an arbitrary number n, then it necessarily has to be true for the next number, n plus 1. And that's sometimes called the successor. So 2 is the successor of 3, 3 is the successor of 4, is, uh, sorry, 3 is the successor of 2, and 4 is the successor of 3. So for every number, you show that if it has this property, then its successor also has this property. And so if you create an implication pipe, from each number to the next, uh, then you know you're saying essentially if it's true for zero, then it has to be true for one. If it's true for six, it has to be true for seven, and so on and so forth. So that's kind of like setting up the dominoes, and then you want to kind of knock over the first domino. And so that means proving something is true for zero. So you prove something is true for zero, and then boom, that implies one. That implies two, and then you can make all the dominoes fall for all for any counting number, um, and you can kind of you know <laughs> you you can kind of uh, you know write the argument out if you wanted. Like let's say I say hey I, I want to show that this is true for a hundred. I could say well I know it's true for zero, and so I know this implication says it's true for one, and I know this implication says it's true for two, and so on and so forth. You can write that all out if you want to, but induction allows you to skip all that and you say hey. I set up all the dominoes, I knock the first one over, and I know it's going to get to 100, so I don't need to write out 100 lines of explanation here, uh, you know, explaining each one. Um, so let me give a couple of mathematical examples. The first one is sort of a contrived example. There are better ways to prove it, but let's say that I want to conclude that every number is either even or odd. There's kind of a better way to do this, but let, let's say that I know that uh, already that the successor to every even number is odd and the successor to an odd number is even. Let's say we're defining even and odd that way even. Uh, that means that if a number is either even or odd, then its successor is either even or odd. Uh, and because you start with zero, which happens to be even, which means it's either even or odd, then you conclude that every number is either even or odd. I don't need to count up to 100 to... Um, to uh, uh, 
to, to show that 100 is either even or odd. So this works really well. Let's go to like some less contrived examples. This works really well uh, when you're trying to make sure that your definitions work. So uh, this one's going to be a hard one to describe through audio, but I'm going to try my best. So let's say that I want to define addition. This is actually really fundamental stuff. Fundamental is in so fundamental nobody talks about it because a lot of people just take addition and multiplication on numbers as like a given. Hey, I know what that is. I learned that in school. But actually, um, mathematicians have and you can formally define these things, like define what does addition mean. So let's say that I define addition by saying that first, any number plus zero is going to be equal to that number. So n plus zero equals n. And then I say that if I add a successor number uh, to n, so I have n plus the successor of m, uh, then I say, well, that's the equivalent to taking the successor of n plus m. So in other words, l l let, me, um, let me put it to you this way. If you have two piles of stones, right, and you want to get their sum, you want to count all of them, you can count the right side, uh, uh, you could count the pile of stones on the right side, you count the pile of stones on the left side, I want to know what their sum is. Um, you can take one stone from the second pile and move it to the first pile, and then you'll still have the same sum. You'll still add up to be the same. That makes a lot of sense. And then you could also say, if my second pile is empty, then all I have to do is count the first pile. So those are essentially the rules. And so then you kind of want to ask, can I prove that this definition works? Is it defined for every counting number? And you can. You can show that, yes, this definition works for every counting number because I already know how to add zero to something um, because it's just that thing. And then if, I, if I'm adding a non-zero number, if I'm adding a successor number, then it tells me that um, it also tells me how to add the, add add. Uh, add one more than that number. Sorry, if I already know how to add a certain number, it could be zero, it could be any number, then I'm also taught how to add one more than that number. And one more being, you know, you put it in the first pile. So if I know how to add zero, this also teaches me how to add one. If I know how to add seven, it teaches me how to add eight. Um, and so, you know, let's kind of go through an example. If I, Like seven plus zero, I know is zero because the second number is zero. But seven plus one, is like, you know, hey, one is the successor of zero, so all I have to do is do seven plus zero and, you know, add one to, to, to the first pile, which is seven. So uh, that's just equal to the successor of seven and zero, and we already know how to add zero. So that's, um, it is a fairly complex one to follow maybe, but I think you kind of get, uh, get the gist of it. One more example, I promise. This one might be a little easier to understand. I don't know. This one is from computer programming, computer science, this is where inductive reasoning really shines in building things in the real world. So let's say that I want to build the factorial function. This is the factorial function is that for any number n, I want to know what's the product of n times n minus 1 times n minus 2 all the way down to 1. So for example, 4 factorial is 4 times 3 times 2 times 1, which is 24. Uh, this stuff is used all the time in probability theory and combinatorics because you're always trying to find the total number of possible arrangements. And n factorial is the number of ways that you can arrange n objects in a list. Um, and the way you get that is, say I have like, uh, say I have four objects. Well, I have to pick 
one of the four objects for the first position. And so there's four ways I can do that. Then for the second position, I have three objects to choose from. Uh, so there's, 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 there's three ways to do that. So it's four times three for the first two, and then, then you multiply two for the last one. And the last one, I only have one possible way to do that. Um, and so that's the number of ways you can arrange n objects in a list. So it's a very important uh, operation in probability theory and in combinatorics and counting. So let's say my program does this. Uh, I want to find n factorial. If I receive a zero, then I return one because zero factorial is one. Uh, one factorial is also one, but zero factorial is an empty product. That whole fight I probably don't want to take on right now, but an empty product is one. And let's say that if the program gets some other counting number that's not zero, but a successor to another number, let's say you get n plus one or the successor of n, then I say, okay, first find the factorial of n and then multiply n plus one to it and return. So if I'm given a four, first I compute three factorial, which is one times two times three, then I multiply in four, and then I get four factorial, which is the result. So the question is, does this program return a result for any number I give it, and any, any counting number? And I'm assuming no time and memory constraints here, no, you know, all infinite precision, not infinite precision numbers, but you can have as many digits as you want. Uh, and the answer is yes, uh, you can. Uh, you can prove it, at least for all the counting numbers, because the dominoes are set up. If I can get n factorial, then I can clearly get n plus 1 factorial. I can get n plus 2 factorial. And 0 does return. I hard-coded 0 to return. I hard-coded 0 to return 1. Um, so that's kind of knocking over the first domino. That's kind of my base case. And then, boom, I prove the code will work. It'll work if I give it 1, because then I'll find 0 factorial and multiply 1. I, I, then I can show it works for 2, 3, 4, so on and so forth. Um, and so that is actually a proof that code will work, uh, at least in theory, because like I said, space and time constraints. Um, this is why I, I actually do like some of the proofs in computer science. Uh, like I said in episode 97, we were talking about uh, um, a book with some of the more you know, practical problems, but uh, I, I do love the proofs as well. They can be really elegant and they can be really helpful in kind of organizing your thoughts when you're designing an algorithm. Uh, so, uh, and, and that's sort of one of them. So, all right, at this point, I actually want to call attention to the way these counting numbers are actually defined. Um, like I said, you know, <laughs> it's not like, you know, one day thousands of years ago, someone said, I'm going to define the number. That's not how it works. Uh, these things are kind of used in the real world to count up, um, you know, they use it to count animals, to count trees, uh, to count coins, whatever it is you wanted to count. And then people started doing addition, multiplication, all that on numbers. So it's only fairly recently when we have these things being logically defined. And you could think, okay, well, why do we need to logically define these um, if, uh, you know, if they've been in use for thousands of years? Uh, but, uh, you know, the answer is it's, it's good to formalize these things. So you can kind of understand why certain things are true and you can kind of prove why new things are true. It really does give you new insights that you don't otherwise have. Um, but it's always very interesting to understand that it comes from the practicality side of it first. So... Um, the counting numbers were, for, have been formally defined. They were originally, there's a number of ways to do it. They were originally done, or most famously done, by an Italian mathematician named Piano in 1889. 
And there were several axioms that he had. But among these, the important ones is that, hey, zero is a natural number, and every natural number has a successor. Those are two important uh, axioms that he had. Hey, makes a lot of sense, right? That's how you count. Um, so now usually that's presented as, and I believe that this is how it was presented at the time that this came out, is, hey, we have this pre-existing set, this pre-existing kind of domain called natural numbers or counting numbers. And these axioms that I'm going to give you, these are just a bunch of assumptions that I'm going to make about these counting numbers. Um, you know, and so I say I'm going to assume that zero is a counting number. I'm going to assume that we have this successor function. Um, but when I started coding more and more, I started to find it helpful to think about these axioms a little differently. Um, instead of thinking about all the numbers as just kind of pre-existing and floating out there, and I'm kind of just imposing um, imposing structure on it. And by the way, there's that's not illegitimate. There's nothing wrong about that. It's it's perfectly okay in mathematics or in logic or otherwise to say, hey, I'm going to make these assumptions. I have something. I don't really know anything about it. I'm going to make a few assumptions, and then I'm going to see you know, where does that lead? What do those assumptions apply? That's certainly legitimate. But when I started thinking about numbers and coding, um, I started thinking more of it as being de defined and discovered one by one. And this is not, this is not me. This is like, this is how computer scientists often think of it. Like, hey, um, you know, uh, <laughs> every book on Haskell or something has, you know, defining natural numbers in this way. So if you're going to do it this way, that means that Piano's axioms give you the rules on how to create new numbers, not just, it, it's not just, um, he's not just saying, hey, these are how numbers work. No, this is how to build a number. And in fact, it gives you ex exactly two ways of defining new numbers. The first is that there's, a, the first is a, very basic, it's just, hey, there's a zero. We kind of take that as a given to exist. That's the first rule. And then the second rule is that you can create a new number by declaring a successor to an existing number. So I start with zero. I can say um, I'm going to construct its successor, and I'm going to call it one. And then I'm going to construct the successor to that, and then I'm going to call it two, and so on and so forth. So uh, that presents a slightly different way of thinking about it. Um, and among the piano axioms is induction, which is to say, hey, if I prove something's true for it works for zero, then, and then I prove that it, if it works for something, it works for its successor, then it works for all of them. Uh, but what that really means is that, um, that that axiom of induction really just means that all of the numbers I'm talking about uh, must have been constructed with a combination of these rules. In other words, we started with zero and we announced successors until we came up with the number we want. Uh, there's nothing outside of that. In other words, I can't come up with a number like 11 and say, hey, that's another natural number I just thought of and you're never going to get to it by uh, calling successors to existing numbers. Uh, you know, no, you're not allowed to do that, and it doesn't work for your theorem. No, you're not allowed to do that. It's um, basically anything that you can construct with those two rules, zero and successor, uh, that's what we're talking about here, uh, which, you know, makes a lot of sense when you want to try to think about numbers and uh, try to, you know, uh, try to kind of restrict the universe of numbers that you're talking about right now. So similar thing in computer science, specifically data structures, if I have a binary tree, I either have a leaf node, a node that has no children, or by the way, for those of you who aren't like in the know on this stuff, I, I, you could skip this for a while, but I'm talking to my computer science uh, majors here, or programmers here. 
if I have a binary tree, I either have a leaf node, a node that has no children, or I have a tree that has a left tree and a right tree. I can't have anything else. I can't have a tree that refers to itself, and I'm assuming that's the imposed rule here. Sometimes you can. Um, so I just said, hey, here are the ways that you could build new trees from existing trees. Use a combination of these rules to build up your tree, build up your database, all that, all good. All right, coming, coming out of that, um, everyone listen now. Uh, so when you come out with, these, with those two rules, uh, zero and successor, there's kind of a certainty to those rules that's pretty great. Uh, they're well-founded. As I said in episode 39, when definitions are well-founded, they prevent paradoxes, uh, they prevent mathematical paradoxes. In this case, in the case of numbers, I know I'm always starting with zero counting forward, there can't be much confusion. So now there's a second, so I, I think I kind of beat that <laughs> to a pulp. I think you probably understand how counting numbers work and how induction works on counting numbers at this point. But there's um, th th that's the induction that most people know about if they know about induction. Uh, so for those of you who just learned induction for the first time, you might want to read more about that and kind of let it sink in. But there's a second kind of induction that I want to talk about today, a much crazier version, in fact. Uh, so remember, in the traditional version, there are two ways to construct a number. You have zero, you have the successor. How many times do I have to say that? <laughs> so now I'm going to introduce the ordinal number. Not the natural number, the ordinal number. And the rule looks slightly different. Instead of having two rules, two ways of defining a new number, we're now going to have 30 different rules. And let's list them. No, just kidding. We're not going to have 30 different rules. We're actually going to reduce it to a single rule, a single rule for defining new ordinal numbers. Get ready for this. Uh, here it is. It's a little bit, it's a little bit wonky, but it's 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 pretty elegant. It's pretty cool if you think about this. An ordinal number is defined by the collection of all previously defined ordinal numbers. Now let me say this again, so that maybe you can wrap your head around it. An ordinal number is defined by the collection of all previously defined ordinal numbers. Hmm. So what difference does that make? Well, remember that in natural numbers, we needed to have a special rule to create zero. Otherwise, there was no way to start off the domino chain reaction. In this case, we don't need a special rule because the collection of previously defined ordinal numbers can be empty. You know, we start out, we're like, okay, we start out with this rule and we say, okay, I want to create an ordinal number. What is my collection of previously defined ordinal numbers? Hey, that's the empty collection. I haven't done any yet. Uh, so we start off by defining the ordinal zero as the collection of the empty collection, which is all previously defined ordinals. Uh, it's empty. Uh, and so there you go. We got zero. And then we can define another one. Let's call it one. And that's the collection of previously defined ordinals, which is just zero. And then we define two, which is the collection of zero and one. And then we define three, which is the collection of zero and one and two, and so on. So it seems like uh, at first glance, we're going to get a similar number system so far. We're still counting zero, one, two, three, four. Uh, so it seems very similar to the counting numbers. Let's dig a little bit further, though. Uh, let's, let's talk about how do you make an inductive argument on ordinal numbers? You have to say, hey, if something is true for any previously defined ordinal, that implies that it's true for this ordinal. And then you get zero for free again, and then your chain reaction sparks. Uh, sparks. Great. So it, it does seem like it requires a little bit more firepower than regular induction, because now you need to show that something is true for all previous numbers instead of just the last one. So 
you're not playing traditional dominoes anymore. Your, your domino doesn't just fall if the last one falls. It has to make sure that all previously, all previous dominoes have fallen as well. Otherwise, it doesn't fall. I don't know what that, act, what, what that game of dominoes looks like, really. <laughs> the domino analogy starts to break down here. But your domino fall only if all the previous ones have fallen. So that could be a little bit harder to prove sometimes. But here's the kicker. With that definition, you can actually consider some sorts of infinite ordinal numbers. This is, now note, note this is different from the type of projective infinity that I talked about in episode 94. This is transfinite ordinal infinity. Uh, so, but, so let's think about this ordinal number. I'm going to start with zero. I'm going to take successors. And I know that ordinals don't, well, yeah, so, so successor and ordinal is a little different, but I'm going to look at sets or collections of all previously ordinals, you know, zero, one, two, three, uh, and you go up to a million, a billion, etc. And then you kind of say, okay, I'm going to consider all of the ordinals that I can construct with this process by just adding one. And I'm going to imagine a new ordinal, let's call it omega, uh, lowercase omega, in this case, the lowercase Greek letter kind of looks like a curvy W again. Um, and omega is defined by the collection of all ordinals that can be constructed in the linear matter as outlined before. So it's omega includes, you know, it's essentially the list of all the counting numbers. So in other words, if you have 0, 1, 2, 3, the counting numbers uh, that are also ordinals, but now you can define these infinite or transfinite ordinals that incorporate all of them, that are the collection of all of them. And of course, you can keep going after that. There's omega plus one, omega plus two, omega plus omega, omega times omega, et cetera. So the universe of ordinals is much richer than just the universe of natural numbers. I talked a little bit about them in episode 94. We might still want a whole episode on them at some point if people are clamoring for it uh, in the future. Um, you know, Maybe if I end up doing these math ones once a quarter, um, we'll, we'll end up getting them. Uh, but this is, this is just from a simple change of rules, from regular induction with zero and successor to ordinal induction, which is all previously ordinal. That changes the game. Um, and that's a much more, in, in some ways, it's a much more powerful version of induction. Um, it, uh, another game changer here, this is kind of the third and final type of logical introduction, I want to, uh, logical uh, induction that I want to go over today, and it's called epsilon induction. It defines sets instead of ordinal numbers, so I'll use, I'll use the term set instead of numbers. But in ordinal numbers, the rule was an ordinal is defined by the collection of all previous ordinals. Um, in some formulations of set theory, it's a set is defined by the collection of previously, by a collection of previously defined sets. So what's the difference uh, in this case is that it doesn't have to be all of them. You know, an ordinal is all of the previously defined ordinals, whereas a set is kind of like some of the previously defined sets. You can have, you know, hey, some of them are going to be in the set, some of them are going to be out the set, out of the set, it's up to you. Uh, so there's a lot more that you could do with sets much more quickly as you build them up. So you start with the empty set, we'll call it zero. We'll start with the set that only contains the, then we'll go to the set that only contains the empty set. Uh, we'll call it one. But next, you don't have just zero and one together. You can have the set of just one. And, you know, there's, there's so many different things you can do uh, out there. Branches out really quickly. Uh, the inductive rule on that is called epsilon induction. So it's the third type of induction. Um, a set has this property if all of its members have this property. So that's called epsilon induction because uh, in mathematical symbols, the epsilon, which is kind of like this weird curvy E, 
is used to indicate that something is a member of a set. Um, and so you, you want to show that something is true for all sets and set theory. And you say, hey, um, it's true when it, this thing is true for a set when it's true for all of its members. So then, then it becomes vacuously true for like the empty set because the empty set doesn't have any members and then you could kind of build up so on and so forth. Um, all right. So uh, that's kind of a quick taste. Those are my ideas on induction. Uh, this is not novel, but I kind of explain it a little differently. If you got some insight onto this that you didn't have before in your math classes, I'd like to hear about it. Contact me at localmaxradio at gmail.com. All right. Now let's, let's take one more step here, and we're going to jump out of the logical world and into the physical world for just a minute. Uh, this, this is often where the application of your day-to-day -day life resides. So I know it helps for me to think this way. This induction stuff, you know, it's interesting at all, but how does it look you know, in real-world situations. And I think the main difference is this. In logical induction, each domino is guaranteed to knock over the next domino. In the real world, that's only approximately true. So if you play dominoes in the real world, you, you know this. A domino, it's likely to knock over the next domino, but certainly not guaranteed, and um, it doesn't always happen. I'm sure you've, you've seen that. So now, if someone says, I'm going to knock over the first domino, so I want you to bet your life on the last domino falling, well, you're going to need to think about that. Uh, if I did a little back-of-the-envelope calculation here, if each domino has a 1% chance of, of failing to knock over the next domino, and I have 100 dominoes lined up, there's only a 36% chance, even, even with a 99% success rate on each one, there's only a 36% chance that the last domino will fall. And that 36% actually is not, not just a random number. It's actually a, 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 a physical or a mathematical constant. It's close to 1 over E, where E is a mathematical constant. In other words, if there's a 1 in N chance of failure at each step, and I have N steps, N dominoes, then I get around a 37% or 1 over E chance of overall success, uh, assuming that N is, is high. So that means that... Let's, let's put it kind of in a way we can understand it easily. That means, very simply, that small chances of failure can compound if you have a lot of domino. That makes sense. Uh, you might not get to the end. And so that's something to watch out for uh, in all different kinds of forecasts and arguments that people make. Um, maybe every step of the argument kind of works, but when you put it all together... You wouldn't want to bet that everything is going to go according to plan or everything works in tandem, uh, even if you would bet on all of the constituent parts. This is a really great way uh, for people to kind of hide risk uh, and, and also a way to kind of think about it to uncover ways that people are trying to hide risk from you when someone is trying to convince you that something is true. You see this in business plans a lot. You know, I'm going to take these 10 steps. There's enormous profit. At, at step 10, um, and I have a really compelling case for why step one will lead to step two, really compelling case for why step two will lead to step three, and so on and so forth, even nine to 10. But then if you put it all together, the chance of getting from one to 10 uh, without one of them failing might not look as good. Um, and so there's a way to work around that. Uh, so so how, do you, how do you, you know, 
if I come to you with one of these 10-step plans and you point that out, uh, how, do I, how do I work that out? How do I work around that? How do I make it more likely that step 10 is going to happen? Um, and the, the way to work around that is to kind of find alternative pathways. It's one way to do it. So you can say, hey, if step 7 doesn't work, there's another way to go from 6 to 9, which is a little tougher. But if you add all these possibilities together, I have lots of these possible ways to get to 10. And so now instead of compounding errors, I have ways of getting around errors. And so if you see that in a plan, uh, you probably have a much better bet. Um, another time you see this problem is what I might call kind of uh, multi-step causality arguments. Uh, hey, A causes B, B causes C. So A will cause C, right? Well, usually, but th actually that's not even always true in causality theory, theory either. Because even if the A to B and B to C relationships are perfect, it could be that I can make C by, by adding B. I could do B and make C happen. But uh, there are cases where <laughs> it's only when I explicitly make B happen. It doesn't count when I... Uh, it doesn't count when I make B happen because I made A happen. It only counts when I intervened in some other way to make B happen. So that, that's, uh, that, that's one way that causality uh, arguments can break. But also, causality models are always imperfect. And if you can chain them together, you can very easily compound errors. I, you know, I talked about this a lot in the episode on narrative confirmation bias in episode uh, 90. Um, and, you know... Uh, when people, and there are a lot of people on the Potterverse coming out with all these theories and ideas the way the world works and, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, theory on top of theory on top of theory, none of them proven, and but all, maybe each step seems kind of, you know, okay, maybe that's not, uh, maybe that's not totally crazy. Uh, but what happens is that by making assumption on top of assumption on top of assumption, uh, once you get far enough out, uh, you're so likely to be off base that <laughs> you're just uh, you know you're just making up stories, uh, and that happens a lot. So without testing these multi-causality models with data, it, it, if it's not a logical statement, like it's not something on numbers that you have to prove, uh, which you, so then if you prove it, you don't have to worry. But if it's a physical statement, then yeah, you kind of do need to back this up with data and. Not just um, not just any data. Like a lot of a lot of times, people will point to like a, a chart or a data source, but it's just not interpreted. Uh, it's just not interpreted properly. Um, so uh, yeah, you need to back this up with data. Bayesian networks are actually usually a great way to go here if you do have kind of a complicated theory with lots of causal relationships, and you do have some data. Uh, then to kind of um, interpret the data as a causal relationship, or even not just causal relationship, just a, um, just a, uh, um, not necessarily causal, just a correlation relationship, then a Bayesian networks uh, can, can be a really great way to, uh, to um, kind of show, hey, that the data supports the, the narrative that I'm giving. Uh, but if you don't do that, if you just link to some numbers as people do and say, hey, I have data, I'm good, uh, <laughs> then you shouldn't just believe them. All right. I am really excited about the guests that I have lined up for the next few weeks at the Local Maximum. I don't want to say who they are 
because I don't want to jinx it. Some might show up, some might not. I hope they all do. Um, but uh, we have everything from new products being built. We're going to be talking about the quality of our conversations online. Um, we're going to talk about you know Bayesian inference in practice. Like how do you actually you know solve real problems with it? Uh, we definitely need to do another news update and catch up with Aaron. Um, in, in in March, we're going to do another. Uh, tech retreat. And so we've got more predictions and we're going to look back at our old predictions. Lots of exciting stuff happening uh, in the next few months in the local maximum. So stay tuned. Remember to subscribe and have a great week, everyone. That's the show. Remember to check out the website at localmaxradio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. This show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe to The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at Max Sklar. Have a great week. It'll feel the power.